With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern day fundraising success. And practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. Thank you for joining us. Today is Tuesday, October 2nd, and this is our second show this week. I hope that you had an opportunity to join us yesterday when the show was live from BBCon, the Black Bod Conference, which is at National Harbor. Uh, still going on and quite successful, and we do have... Uh, an update uh, from BBCon uh, here on Page One News. For those of you who are familiar with the show, those of you who are new, uh, as the announcer just mentioned, this is a live call-in show, so you can call us at 347-324-3080 and ask questions of our Page Two experts uh, when we get to Page Two on the show. And today, I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome uh, here to the nonprofit coach, Linda Lysakowski, ACFRE, uh, an expert and an icon in the nonprofit sector. She will be our page two uh, guest today, so get your pencils out and make sure that you've got that number. For those of you who are shy, you can also join us over in the chat room. I see a number of people uh, in the chat room right now. You can ask questions there. Uh, you can also email me your questions at tedhart at tedhart.com. Don't forget when you dial in to press the number one, that will tell me that you do want to ask a question, uh, and I will find you right here on the switchboard. Uh, with that, here, as always, on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. Over here on page one news, you can always join us over at tedhart.com. Click on radio links, and you will find all the links that we have provided for you today, not only for today's show, uh, but all of the archives of prior shows, best links in the industry. You will find over in the radio links today uh, a link to our top ten shows of all time. Uh, and I'm quite excited to welcome here live on the Nonprofit Coach one of our top ten 
uh, guest experts of all time on, on the Nonprofit Coach uh, radio show, and that's Pat Pasquale. Pat, welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach radio show. Thank you, Ted, for asking me again. Well, it's great to have you uh, have you here on the show, and uh, uh, of course, uh, you are with the Foundation Center, uh, and over at uh, the Foundation Center, you uh, help uh, uh, folks uh, with a, a number of different uh, topics. But here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, Radio Show, uh, you were here as our top ten uh, expert. Um, and uh, what makes you so popular? Uh, why do people uh, keep coming back to not only listen to you when you're live on the show, uh, but your podcast is extremely popular? Well, I think it's because I work for the Foundation Center, and we are the leading source of information on philanthropy. And we provide quality information in a number of formats. Um, I think we've been very um, progressive in terms of, and we've gone from the Foundation Directory, which some people still ask for the book, to from C, from that to CD-ROMs. Now we're on um, the internet. We do podcasts. We do tweets. We do all kinds of multimedia approaches. So you do the nonprofit coach radio show. Yes, we do. We do webinars. <laughs> we try to make the information very accessible to people where they are because people are so busy and they can't get out to physical locations anymore, but uh, they can turn on their computers um, and pick up their personal devices <laughs> and, and, and get good, good solid information. Now, you, uh, you were uh, here on the, uh, the, uh, the show uh, for your top ten rated show. Uh, you were here on uh, June twenty second, 2010. Uh, that's your top ten uh, show number eight of all time. Uh, you've been back on the show since then, and your more recent show is, is just moving right up the charts. So I have no doubt that you're probably going to be staying in the top ten. Um, since we've only got a few moments with you here on page one, what's one of the best pieces of advice that you have given nonprofits for success in fundraising? Well, today I think figuring out what to do with this new topic called big data and, you know, getting ahead of it. There are articles everywhere. Take some classes, read, figure out how you're going to use data. Don't be afraid of it because it's not it's it's a new term, but nonprofits have been using data for a long time. It's just there's so much more of it out there through the internet and all sorts of mapping tools and visualizations, et cetera. But use so it to your advantage. Are you with us? Yes. Pat? Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what is big data? Um, big data basically is a term that's been bouncing around for the last year or so, year and a half. It's usually what it basically is. I found a really good um, definition that it's really marketing intelligence. It's it's any kind of information that helps you understand your constituency, meet unmet needs, or work well with others. That's what my colleague Larry McGill, and vice president for research, defines it as. And I think when you look at it that way, it's less scary. We've always used census materials. We've used the Annie Casey Kids Count Book in order to figure out, you know, the needs of a community. It's just there's more of it out there, <laughs> and layering it is more of a possibility because of these new um, So it's really using tools. multiple data sets to give yourself a bigger picture of the landscape than just uh, name and address. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, terrific. Well, as always, uh, Pat Pasquale, anytime you come here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, you bring us really, really good information. We look forward to having you back as a page two expert. Uh, that is Pat Pasquale at the Foundation Center in Washington, D.C., uh, who is here helping us celebrate the fact that she is one of the smartest people in fundraising, and she is our number eight 
in the top 10 of all time uh, favorite shows here on the Nonprofit Coach. Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, radio show, you'll find over in the radio links at tedhart.com uh, a link over to the Direct Marketing Fundraisers Association. I'm very pleased to uh, to welcome here uh, to the Nonprofit Coach Wendy Weber. Uh, Wendy Weber um, comes to us uh, from Crandall Associates. Uh, Crandall Associates, um, you are the president of Crandall Associates, an executive search firm specializing in direct and digital marketing. Much of the work that they do is in the nonprofit sector, placing direct marketing fundraising professionals at both nonprofits and the agencies that they serve. Crandall Associates is based in New York, but today we've got uh, Wendy Weber here with us on a very specific topic that I know is going to be of interest to our listeners today, uh, and that is that uh, you've been asked to help out the Direct Marketing Fundraisers Association uh, give away some money. Is that yes. right, Wendy? That's correct. So tell us all about it, Wendy, and by the way, uh, welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach. Thanks, Ted. So what, uh, what are you giving away, and, and why would my listeners be interested? Uh, well, uh, giving away money, and so your in- your listeners should be interested because it is uh, amazingly easy to receive some of the funds that are available through the DMFA. Oh, um, I'm all I'm all ears. So tell us what's <laughs> available, and uh, we have provided a link over in the radio links today, so all of our listeners can go directly to tedhart.com, click on radio, and they can follow along with the DMFA scholarship fund. Tell us all about it. Okay. Well, the DMFA is a fabulous uh, professional organization that is uh, an organization that was established to share direct marketing knowledge and ideas among its members. And they realized that all too often fundraisers face tight budgets that prevent them from pursuing continual uh, professional development. And this fund was created to provide resources to help subsidize educational expenses. Uh, the funds could be used for a webinar, a full-day seminar, uh, an annual conference, really any continuing professional development in the nonprofit fundraising realm. Okay, so anything related to fundraising, not necessarily just direct marketing. That's correct. Well, it's within the direct marketing scope, so... Um, okay. I, I think that they would probably expect that there's a direct marketing component to uh, receiving okay. the funds. Okay. Um, the way to receive the funds is that you must complete a, a little essay, uh, a 250-word essay on why you're applying. That essay must be received 60 days prior to the event. And the scholarships can be applied only to the cost of the class or conference. It's not for, uh, for example, airfare. Um, and then um, the co- the scholarship can be in any amount between fifty and one thousand dollars. And the only additional requirement is that you need to provide a written um, feedback to the DMFA about what you learned at the class or conference. Well, that's terrific. Well, um, now, Wendy, um, tell me, how did Crandall Associates get involved uh, with such a terrific project? Well, uh, I personally have become involved with the Direct Marketing Fundraisers Association because I find that their members are uh, certainly important people for us to have in our network, 
And uh, whenever I hear about something that I think is worthy, I try to spread the word to my network, and uh, that's how we uh, begun this co- began this collaboration. Well, that's terrific. Well, I try to do the same thing, and that's uh, why we have good folks like you here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, Radio Show. Um, now, how would uh, people uh, – they got the link uh, at tedhart.com today uh, that they can go to, but they can also – uh, can they call Risa uh, Sudnow as well? Absolutely, yes. She is so their representative. give that number out. Do you want to give that number out? I've got it here if you need it. Uh, I do need it, yes. Okay, no no problem. Uh, you can uh, go to tedhart.com, click on radio links. You'll find the entire link that uh, Wendy has been so kind to share with us. Or you can call 646-675-7314 and ask for information on the DMFA Scholarship Fund. Uh, Wendy uh, uh, Weber, president of Crandall Associates, headquartered in New York. Thank you for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach today. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. Come back anytime. Uh, next up here on the uh, Nonprofit Coach radio show, uh, we've got a very, very full show for you uh, uh, today, and I promised a little bit of an update uh, coming to you from BBCon. We've got Melanie Mathos here, uh, who is live over at the conference, um, Melanie, thank you for joining us here again on the Nonprofit Coach. Sure, glad to be back. Now, Melanie, I'm thrilled that you're uh, joining us. Uh, now, how are things going over at BBCon? It's still going strong. We're just finishing up our last sessions here and headed into the general session to hopefully inspire folks to transform their organizations when they get back and use some of the things they learned from all the great speakers that we've had here. Well, and you, of course, had... Uh, uh, three of your top folks here on the Nonprofit Coach Special Edition, uh, live from BBCon yesterday. So this is our second show. Uh, but you folks uh, made some news last night in honoring some very fine organizations. Um, and um, I'm uh, glad that you chose to come here on the Nonprofit Coach to let the broader world know what happened yesterday. Sure. Well, uh, as you know, and we spoke about yesterday, the Convio Summit combined with BBCon this year. And one of the things that uh, the Convio community had always valued was the Innovator Awards. So we brought that into the conference this year as the BBCon Impact Awards, uh, where we recognized six nonprofits for their innovative use of technology. Can you give us uh, some of the details of who won and, and why were they recognized? Sure, definitely. So uh, we had six winners, as I mentioned, and the first was our best multi-channel campaign, and that went to Gleaners Community Food Bank of Southeastern Michigan. Uh, their use of a multi-channel approach to combat the rising demand for emergency food uh, resources uh, won that award. And we have case studies all available at blackbodnews.com uh, with more specifics that you might be able to learn from to, to adopt at your organization. Uh, the next one was Best CRM Visionary, and this went to YWCA of Columbus. And this award went to the organization uh, for a couple of reasons. One of the things is they really reevaluated how they were using their CRM and then also their data integrity and really taking a deep dive into the data, uh, which really greatly improved uh, their returns. And then also they launched a mobile website. And Best Online Campaign went to Ocean Conservancy. They had a really neat effort. Uh, they did a 30-day trash-free challenge. And they took, for the first time, they took a lot of components online. So it's really to to raise awareness for the, all the things you can do offline, but uh, they had the highest level of engagement ever just by adding that online uh, layer to the campaign. 
and case study there as well. And then the best peer-to-peer went to University of Guelph, a Canadian uh, institution. They use peer-to-peer fundraising to really pull together the different departments in their university, all in support of uh, raising money, communications, and then uh, they were able to build a new Olympic track as a result of that. Um, They also just raised a huge amount of money while decreasing costs by going to that peer-to-peer model. And uh, best two, uh, media, two additional uh, awards as well. Um, what happened over in the uh, best use of new media? This one was really neat. It was American Diabetes Association, and a lot of these national organizations struggle with how they can maintain their brand yet still support the grassroots fundraising events and the chapter fundraising events. Uh, so what ADA did is they developed a, a training series, and they really got down into the communities and shared resources for how to uh, have a comprehensive event strategy on Facebook. So they created a best practices guide and also implemented training across the organization. And your final award, is that, is that sort of the, the big, uh, uh, big finale for uh, the uh, overall use of BlackBot? Yes, so this one's a very neat organization. Uh, they wanted to boost revenue for their sponsorship program. So what they did is they implemented an online sponsorship program to really uh, make it easier for people to lend their support and get involved. And they had experienced a huge growth in overall revenue, online revenue, and sustainer gifts. So that was a really neat story there as well. So uh, we were really proud to recognize them, and it was a lot of fun celebrating their success at BBCon. And uh, and how are they recognized? We recognize them as part of the, the keynote yesterday, and then our corporate uh, philanthropy team has made a donation to each organization. That's terrific. Uh, well, and uh, so BBCon is now wrapping up for uh, for the year. This was the largest BBCon audience ever? Yes, we had 2,600 attendees, and that includes uh, a lot of great partners, uh, both from the Convio and BlackBot side coming together now, and then our, our combined customer base as well. So it was a really wonderful event, and uh, we're looking forward to next year already. Well, great, and we look forward to our continued association with BlackBot and wish you all the best as you uh, wrap up another successful, I think, your 13th uh, BBCon conference. Uh, so we all look forward to number 14. Great. Well, thank you, Ted. Thank you, Melanie, and congratulations to all of the winners announced here on the Nonprofit Coach in the BlackBot Innovator uh, Impact Awards. So that was Melanie Matthews from BlackBot making that announcement. It is now time for us to move right on over to our top expert for the day, Linda Lysakowski, over on page two. Now, first of all, one of the things you need to know about Linda Lysakowski, not only is she one of the top experts in the nonprofit sector, but she is also an ACFRE. She's one of fewer than 100 professionals worldwide uh, to hold the Advanced Certified Fundraising Executive designation. I hold that designation as well, and so I always feel that I have at least a little bit in common with Linda Lysakowski. In her 19 years as a philanthropic consultant, she has managed capital campaigns, helped dozens of nonprofit organizations achieve development goals, and has trained more than 22,000 professionals in Mexico, Canada, Egypt, and most of the 50 United States in all aspects of development. She's a graduate of the AFP's 
Faculty Training Academy and has received two AFP research grants. And those are not easy uh, to come by, so you can clearly see that Linda knows what she's talking about. She's also a prolific writer. She's currently working on several more books. She's received the Outstanding Fundraising Executive Award from both Eastern PA and Las Vegas chapters, two separate chapters. It's impressive enough to win that just once. Uh, and in 2006 was recognized internationally with the Barbara Marion Award for Outstanding Service to AFP. Uh, if you're not already impressed, you should be, and she's right here live on the Nonprofit Coach, Linda Lysakowski. Welcome. Thanks, Ted. It's great to be back again. I, it seems like it's been forever since we've talked, and um, as Ted mentioned, the ACFRE process, I wanted to kind of announce that pretty soon that we're going to be um, installing the 100th ACFRE, so we'll have to change our our blurbs, I guess, Ted, if we are saying that we're one of less than 100 because we're ready to go over the 100 mark. So I'm kind of excited about that because it's always good to see another ACF or rejoin the ranks, and it's great to be back here on your show, Ted. Absolutely, and the fact that uh, we're both ACFREs gives us an opportunity to just promote that process and encourage the listeners today uh, who may be thinking about becoming ACFRE that, that it is an important thing uh, that you consider uh, because it, it, it shows your, your interest, your support of our growing industry and to set yourself apart as an expert uh, so that you can be a beacon of light to those uh, who are entering the field and those who are looking to grow uh, within the field. So, uh, Linda, thank you for one, being one of those uh, beacons of light. Now, there's so much that I want to talk to you about today, but I, but I do want to ask you uh, to sort of introduce my listeners today uh, to uh, a very uh, interesting book, and that's Fundraising for the Genius. Yes, this is my, that's actually my latest book. I have actually, I believe, three more at the in editing process that will be released probably either later this year or early next year. But I'm really excited about fundraising for the genius. It's um my publisher Stephen Nill calls it my opus <laughs> and and I think it it it's sort of a soup to nuts everything you need to know about fundraising. In fact, um at the publisher's suggestion we put a tagline in there that this is the only book you'll ever need, but this course is not the only book you'll ever want to buy about fundraising. But I'm excited about it for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it is such a comprehensive book. It really covers the soup to nuts of fundraising, starting with defining what's the difference between philanthropy, development, and fundraising, and then going all through um, some of the things that you were just talking about, direct marketing, social media, in-person fundraising, corporate fundraising, plan giving, um, with kind of a, a nice overview of oh, just about everything you need to know about fundraising, um, including how you plan for fundraising and how you evaluate and assess your fundraising. Because I'm a firm believer that too many of us just sort of plot along with um, doing the same thing over and over again and never take the time to assess what we're doing in fundraising. So I'm excited about the book for that reason. The second reason I'm excited about the book is that it's a brand new release and for a whole new series of books that will be coming out called For the Genius. And unlike my other books, um, this one obviously is directed to the nonprofit market because it's fundraising for the genius, but the Genius series is a general audience book. So we're going to be releasing books in all kinds 
kind of topics from wine for the genius and sewing for the genius and a whole variety of topics. It's probably pretty easy to figure out who our competition is um, for these books, but we like to think that our readers are really intelligent, and I just had someone come up to me and say, I feel really good about buying this book and putting it on my shelf because it says it's for the genius. So I'm kind of excited about the book, but also about the series that we're going to be releasing very shortly. Well, I did find that very interesting because it, it, it does sort of make you feel good uh, when you when you see that uh, see that book. But um, but do geniuses need books, or are they just geniuses already? How, how do you how well, do you make you know, the, uh, folks smarter the, uh, the by reading? The tagline that we're kind of using in this book is you don't have to be a genius to read this book, but we hope you'll be a lot more knowledgeable about the topic after you're finished reading the book. Um, so we sort of use it as a tongue-in-cheek, um, kind of a, a little bit of a wordplay against some of the other competing organized books that are out there talking about, you know, various different topics. But we like to think that our readers are intelligent, but they maybe they're novices at what they're doing. Maybe they've um, been involved in the nonprofit world for a long time, but they've not had to do fundraising. And now maybe they're being put into a fundraising situation where their organization um, has lost a big source of funding. For example, I've been working over the past year or so with a group of organizations that had a, a very large federal grant that they expected to run for about three years, and so they were all kind of merrily rolling along, providing this wonderful service of mentoring children with pris children of prisoners. And these were associations all over the country, and suddenly that grant was sort of pulled out from under them very unexpectedly, and then they all, all of a sudden had to face some hard facts about fundraising, that they needed to do more than rely on federal grants. And I think this is going to be probably more and more common as government money shrinks both on the state level, the county level, the federal level. So a lot of organizations maybe never had to do fundraising before. Maybe they've run a very successful nonprofit for years and years, but they were never required to really get involved in fundraising. So that's why we call our books genius books, because they are for people who, you know, are capable and knowledgeable but need to either brush up on a topic or learn about a new topic or just want to learn more about something that maybe they're already doing. Yeah, and, and so you're going to be covering a lot of different topics, but as you said, this one uh, sort of starts the, the, the trend, Fundraising for Genius. Um, in this uh, book, you talk about developing sustainable fundraising programs. Is, is the message that you just gave to us one about contingencies? Right. I think it's it's really important that organizations plan ahead. I'm I'm a huge fan of planning. The old saying of failing to plan is planning to fail. I really believe in that because so many organizations get sort of trapped into particularly I find two areas, as I mentioned, federal grants. Another area that I find especially smaller organizations getting trapped in is special events. I just actually spoke yesterday at a a gathering of nonprofits who were there because they were all taking part in a very, very large um, and very successful special event. 
But I find sometimes organizations get stuck in that special event mode where a board member or a volunteer or maybe even a staff person comes in and says, oh, I just heard about this really great event. We should do this, and we should run a golf tournament because the hospital ran one and they raised $200,000, or let's have a gala dinner dance because everybody in town is having a gala dinner dance and they're all making a lot of money. And so they just go from one event to the other, and they never really take time to analyze those events and say, you know, are we really making money at this? I, I just, in fact, heard from a person who said her organization for two years in a row lost $50,000 on an event, and they're still planning to hold it the next year. <laughs> and you start to wonder, like, why do people not take the time to think and to plan? So in this book, I really talk about all the different aspects of fundraising that you can try, and maybe not all of them are for every organization. But no organization should be dependent on one or two different types of fundraising. You will never succeed if you do only direct mail or only special events or only grants. So I'm really trying to encourage um, people to get involved in more and more activities. I was really kind of delighted to hear your earlier guest talking about scholarships available for education because I think this is what is so needed in the nonprofit community that we can get out and educate people about all aspects of fundraising, not just focusing on one particular area. So I really stress that in the book. Well, it, it, wasn't that a really nice, uh, um, uh, innovative uh, scholarship fund for uh, the DMFA to come up with? Um, and it seems that you know they're not just putting it out there, but, but they're being very proactive and wanting people to know about it. So that that really is sort of a big advance forward. We we wouldn't have it seen is. that just a few years ago. No, I think that's huge. I think there's always been a lot of educational opportunities out there, probably never as many as there have been now. And I think, was it Wendy who talked about that? Um, I think she was really right on that a lot of people don't have time to get to national conferences. They don't have the travel budget to do it, but there are webinars out there. There are local and regional conferences. And I think this is wonderful that um, this organization is stepping up and giving scholarships because so many people would like to do more education and more training, but they just don't have it in their budget to do it. So I certainly encourage all the listeners out there to take advantage of that and get your application in right away. <laughs> right, right, exa exactly. Now back to uh, back to your your book here, which um, people can uh, find on your book, your website, Linda Lysakowski, and we do have a link uh, to that at tedhart.com. Uh, click on a radio link so that people uh, can. Uh, can do that. Um, now, in in this uh, in this book, you talk about enabling, uh, bringing people together. Your board, your non-development staff, your development staff, your volunteers. Uh, this is what's typically referred to as the team. But how often does that really work? I think it it works well if organizations really take the time to do it. Unfortunately, some organizations, both from the staff perspective and even from the board perspective sometimes feel that, well, if they hire a development person, then, oh, boy, our job is over. We don't have to worry about that fundraising stuff anymore. Let's dump it all on her lap or his lap and let the development staff person worry about the fundraising, and we don't have to do it anymore. And that never really works because it has to be a team effort. 
if you think about um, and another book that I recently published this year was Raise More Money from Your Business Community, and I think it's particularly true in the business community, but it's true with other donor uh, situations as well, that if you want to raise money from a business and you're going to go out and talk to the CEO of the business, they don't want to usually talk to the development director. They want to talk to the CEO of the nonprofit. So the role of the executive director or the president or whatever you call your CEO in fundraising is really critical. They are the face of the organization in most cases, and that's who people think about when they think about your organization. And I think if you talk to any university or college president, they will tell you that they probably spend 75% of their time doing fundraising because people want to speak to the person in charge. And I think it's especially true in the business community, and it's also true with foundations and with individuals. When you're talking to major donors, they want to speak to the CEO of your organization. So that person's role is critical, and the board's role is really critical because most foundations these days will ask you the question right up front on the application, has your board financially supported your organization? What percentage of your board is supporting your organization? And in some cases, they even want to know what dollar amount that your board has contributed to the organization. So if the board members are not engaged in fundraising and the executive director is not engaged in fundraising, you're really setting up the development director for failure and you're investing a lot of money in a person who is not going to succeed because they're working in isolation and they're not working as a team. I also really believe strongly that non-development staff have a big role to play in fundraising too. And just to give you kind of an example, I worked a long time ago in a museum. And when I started my job at this museum, I was head of the foundation there, and I was um, the first fundraising person they ever engaged. So they had nothing in place. Well, they did have um, a predecessor of Razor's Edge in place. They had a good software system, but no one knew how to use it. They had no really names in the system to speak of, and so they were really starting from scratch. So I interviewed the director of the museum, the CEO, got a lot of great input from him, and I interviewed the curator of fine arts because I wanted to learn about our collection so I would be able to speak to donors about our collection, why it was important to the community. And then I spoke to the program director who had our educational programs for school children, and I got some great information from her about what we were doing with the schools. And that helped me raise money. But one person I talked to helped me, I think maybe even more than any of those, and that was the security guard at the museum. And it sounds like an unlikely person to be helping with fundraising, but he was the person who stood inside the front door and watched the school kids come in and saw the looks on their faces when they heard about the different things in the museum. He knew all the docents of the museum, and he knew um, which ones were wealthy, which ones had connections in the community, and how we could um, work with those people to, to develop more fundraising for the museum. So everybody in that museum, I really tapped into their expertise and their knowledge and their institutional memory, and their fundraising was extremely successful because it was really thought about as a team effort. It wasn't just, oh, we're going to hire a fundraising person and let them on their own, and they're going to raise all the money. 
So it's only successful if it really happens as a team effort. Well, I agree, and and, uh, we're going to take just a real quick uh, break. When we come back, I wanted to ask you if you would uh, delve into uh, this concept of the role of the CEO, because I think that oftentimes that, for, for the average fundraiser that's listening today, that can be one of the biggest challenges uh, that you might have. Uh, and we will be right back. I want to make sure that everybody uh, has their calendars out and that uh, you are able to uh, uh, have written down the upcoming shows here on The Nonprofit Coach. Next week we will have Sean Triner, who is a global fundraising guru here on The Nonprofit Coach, followed by David Sims from the Leukemia Foundation, uh, and the week after that, David LaGreca here on Governance Matters, Board of Directors, Trustees. We're going to round out the month of October with Amy Eisenstein, who is a major gift campaign consultant. Uh, we're going to kick off uh, the uh, uh, the new uh, uh, month uh, with uh, the first show. is going to be one on international giving on November 13th. That's going to be a very, very important show. Uh, we will not, however, have a show on uh, November 6th, and the reason for that is uh, that that is election day. We want to make sure that everybody's out uh, voting and helping the candidate of your choice. Uh, November 20th, uh, Robert Penna is going to be here uh, with the Outcomes Toolbox. Uh, we're going to then have the Green Show, uh, which is a partnership with Green Nonprofits, on November 27th. Uh, Steve Hafner, who's always popular here, talking about ma- uh, matching gifts, uh, will start us out uh, in December, on December 4th. And don't miss our big holiday show. Each year, Kay Sprinkle Grace is here as our holiday uh, show expert, and she's going to be talking about strategic holiday fundraising. So uh, that's the uh, upcoming shows here on The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, We're going to head right back over to our page two expert, Linda Lysakowski. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. We are back live here with Linda Lysakowski. Don't forget that you can call in today. Uh, You can also ask questions over in the chat room or email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. Now, Linda, what about this role of of the CEO? You had mentioned before how you consider that vital to the fundraising success of uh, of an organization. However, oftentimes that's one of the jobs the CEO is trying to divest him or herself of. Um, Can that happen and be successful? Well, it it might happen in some organizations. I know one organization, for example, where the chief development officer is really kind of the face of the organization, and I'm not sure if that executive director is grooming her to take over that role, but it's still the, the CEO of that organization. They're very successful in fundraising because she, the chief development officer, has a lot of connections in the community, works those connections very well, but still the CEO is visible. When there's, for example, I worked with this organization on a capital campaign, and when they had a capital campaign meeting, it was the CEO who was there present, especially with volunteers. I think volunteers really need to see the presence of the CEO. And if the CEO just kind of washes their hands 
of fundraising. I really don't have never seen an organization succeed with that mentality. Um, just as an example, I worked in a university at one point, and we had a very dynamic and charismatic president, and we had a very successful annual corporate appeal. And we had about 150 to 200 volunteers from the corporate world that came together, raised money for us. We raised about a half a million dollars a year in a fairly small community, just from mostly small to medium-sized businesses in our community. But one of the reasons that was so successful is the president of the university would meet with the chairperson and the vice chairperson of the corporate appeal. She would attend the kickoff meeting where all the volunteers were there and gave a really enthusiastic and powerful talk about the organization. And I've seen organizations that really brought themselves up from their from bootstraps because they have a dynamic CEO as a leader. I'm working with a, a medical clinic right now that provides free um, health care for people who are uninsured. And the founder of this is a, a doctor herself, and she is just so enthusiastic that when you hear her get up and speak, I think you, you, your first instinct is you want to open up your wallet and just throw money at her. She's, she's so powerful. And, yes, they have a director of development who coordinates and organizes all this, and I think it's real critical that the development person and the CEO work very, very close together. In fact, one of the things that sometimes – organizations fail at is they hire a director of development, but they put that person on a level of having them report to the head of marketing or the head of finance or something other than the CEO, and that never seems to succeed because the CEO and the development person really need to be a harmonious team. They need to work together. And if you have a CEO who's really, really busy and says, I don't have time for donor cultivation stuff, you have to work with them to make time, and you work with their administrative assistant and say, you know, I need for the president to be here at this luncheon with this potential major donor, and it's really critical to the organization. And I think every CEO wants their organization to succeed. So if they understand the importance of their presence in those key major donor meetings, they will be there because they know how critical it is to the organization and to its programs. And so the organizations that are the most successful at this are ones where the development director or the vice president or the chief development officer, whatever you call that person, reports directly to the president or the CEO of the organization. Or the yeah, and, and that's a very director. important connection, isn't it? And, and, and you don't always necessarily um, see that being the case, but tell us why you advise that and the downfall to not doing it. Well, I think the downfall to not doing it is the public image that you send out. I'm a real strong believer that an organization has to create a very strong philanthropic culture. And, for example, I've seen organizations where they have a vice president of administration and a vice president of finance and a vice president of program and maybe another vice president of another program. And then they hire a development person and they give them the title um, development coordinator or some some really low-level indicating title. And when people see that on a business card, they don't have the 
the person doesn't have the credibility that they would have if they had a title that was more indicative indicative of what they really do. So if everybody in your organization at that administrative level is called a vice president, then your development person should be a vice president. If everyone's called a director, then your development person should be called a director. And it might sound like a really small thing, but it's very important because when that development person is out in the public and handing someone their card, and in fact, I just met a group of people yesterday and got a card from somebody and it said development coordinator. So my immediate assumption is there's some type of a low-level person that maybe there's a higher person that's in charge of development, and this isn't really the decision maker in the department. So I think titles are important. We sometimes don't realize how important they are, but, you know, when you hand that business card out, it's got to look like you are a a key part of the administration and that philanthropy is a high priority for that organization. Now, isn't that what you're really saying is that this is is where philanthropy fits to us, so this isn't just you should give us money because we need money, but that we really value the relationships that are built through philanthropy. Absolutely, and that's why, you know, in my book, Fundraising for a Genius, I spent the first chapter talking about fundraising, philanthropy, and development, what's in a name, I think is the title of of that chapter, because it is important that we understand philanthropy and development and the I think a real simple definition is fundraising is really the activities that you do. It's the the direct mail, it's the social media, it's all of those things. But development is about developing developing relationships with your donors. Um, You know, I think we all know the three key words in real estate, location, 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 and fundraising has three key words too, relationships, relationships, relationships. And then philanthropy is, to me, the more global view of thinking that every one of our donors is a philanthropist and that we really owe it to our organizations, to ourselves, and to our donors to value that philanthropy, whether it's a major gift, a moderate gift, or a gift of time from a volunteer. We really need that whole philanthropic community in order to survive and to be a better world. Yeah, and, and and I'm so glad that you brought that up because that that really is, um, I think, the essence of some of the problems that nonprofits feel that they have um, working in you know fundraising to philanthropy to development. All these different words have so many different meanings. Um, when you're working with a board of directors, who all they really sort of know is that they want and need more money. Um, right. Where do you go from there? Well, I think the the best thing to do is really get someone to come in and educate your board because I have found as a staff person it's almost sometimes impossible to stand up and talk to your board about the importance of fundraising and development and what it's really all about. So a couple choices you have is you could hire a consultant to do it, but if you don't have the funds to do that, I would suggest that you look at some other organization in your community that you know does have a real strong philanthropic culture whose board is very engaged in the philanthropic process and ask their chair of their board or maybe their CEO to come in and talk to your board and help them understand the difference between 
you know, fundraising activities, because sometimes board members do just focus on dollars, and they think that fundraising is just about going out and asking for dollars. And really, I think anybody who's been in this field for any length of time knows that asking for dollars, especially with major gifts, is about 5% of your work, and 95% of your work is identifying those donors, cultivating those donors, building the relationship, stewarding those donors once they've made a gift. So the ask is really a small part of the fundraising role, and sometimes board members just don't get that, and sometimes CEOs don't get it either. So a lot of times there's just an educational process that needs to take place. I I think a lot of times board members have this sort of tin cup mentality, and that may have maybe worked many many years ago or it might work with some emergency situations but fundraising is not about just standing out there with your tin cup and asking for money it's all about building the relationships with the donors well, and that's true let, let me try this one on for for size with you cuz i had a uh, a a ceo once said oh yeah yeah i i, I can do that fundraising thing I, I, all you do is you take people to lunch <laughs> Well, I think another common thing is, well, when we're hiring a, a fundraiser, we hire somebody with sales experience because fundraising is really just like sales. And I do believe that salespeople have a lot of skills and talents that can be transferred into fundraising. But I came from a banking background. I spent 11 years in banking, and I was mostly in the marketing department. So I've had a lot of sales and marketing experience. But I realized the first day I walked into a nonprofit job that I really needed to learn a lot about development and philanthropy and fundraising because my sales and my business skills were helpful to me, but I still needed to learn. And and so I did exactly what I was talking about earlier. I went to every uh, – they, they didn't have webinars back in those days, but I went to every conference and every meeting and every – workshop I could possibly find, and and I read books. I read a lot of books about fundraising, and I joined AFP, and I went to the international conference and met, you know, thousands and thousands of fundraisers and networked with them, and that's that was really, to me, the key to being successful. Yeah, and, and so um, back to the, the, uh, the, the CEO for our listener today, um, whose, you know, CEO is it basically has the attitude, well, that's your job, that's why I hired you. Um, what do you say and, and how do you make progress when you're in that kind of environment? One of the things I think if you're in that environment that can be the most helpful, because, again, it's going to be very hard for you as a staff person to, to tell your CEO what their job is. <laughs> that is probably signing yourself a, a death warrant. <laughs> you're, you're probably not going to be in your job very long if you do that. But if you have a board member or a development committee member that understands development and philanthropy and the whole important role of the CEO, I would ask that person to talk to your CEO um, and have that person really make it clear. The other thing that, that sometimes helps, and I get called in to do a lot of development audits, and hiring a consultant to come in and do a development audit, they're, one of the things they're going to look at very strongly is what's the role of the development staff, what's the role of the CEO, what's the role of the board and volunteers in fundraising, and oftentimes an outside person can come in and convince your CEO that they really do have an important role in this. So I would 
either approach it through some of the volunteers that are involved or bring in someone from the outside because you really can't often step up as your, you know, as a level of employee below the CEO and tell the CEO what what they have to do. We have uh, an email question uh, from Alex in Seattle, um, and he's asking about tips on evaluating the success of a development program. Oh, I'm glad you asked about that because I think that's so, so critical. And, in fact, one of the books that I'm working on now um, that I'm really excited about, and it should be released probably probably the beginning of January, but it's called What's Wrong With Your Fundraising and How You Can Fix It. And it really focuses a lot on metrics, about measuring your performance. And we talk about leading indicators and trailing indicators. Um, And I was glad to hear that you have Robert Penna on your book because he does a lot of work with outcomes, mostly related to programs. I've read his book, and it's really a good one. but I think you can translate a lot of that into measuring the outcomes of your fundraising. And and he's going to be uh, on the show uh, November 20th, so that's oh, uh, a yeah. nice little plug for Robert Penna's show. Yeah, he, he'll, he'll be great, I think, as a contributor because I was really impressed with the work that he did on outcomes. But this is what you have to do with fundraising, too, measure everything. For example, I have... Um, I have two websites, and if they don't get to the one, they can email me, and I'll give them the other one is cvfundraising.com. That one has a lot of assessment tools on it, Um, and one of those tools, for example, is a tool to measure your special events. And when you measure those, you not only look at how many dollars were brought in, how many dollars were spent, but you look at things like how much staff time was expended, how much volunteer time you know, and it really helps you evaluate your special event in a very objective way. I have a lot of other evaluation tools on there, and there's a link to um, a colleague of mine, Ellen Bristol, who I'm actually co-writing my book with. She has a, an online assessment that you can take free. It's called the Leaky Bucket Assessment, and it'll it addresses nine specific areas of fundraising. It doesn't, you know, obviously cover every detail of fundraising, but it is a pretty comprehensive look at how you measure your fundraising. Because what what I find is most people don't measure it at all. They just kind of take what happens and say there's nothing we can do about it. But there is. You have to measure every piece of direct mail you send, every phone call you make, every visit you make. And there are a lot of tools to help you do that. And I would be happy to talk to you um, offline, Alex, too, because I don't know if we'll have time to get into every one of those tools in the next couple of minutes, but there are a lot of tools out there available on my website and other websites. I have some links to other websites, too, that you can go to to assess your fundraising performance. And if you're not aware of it, um, AFP, along with a whole bunch of fundraising software vendors, including Blackboard, who you mentioned earlier, have a fundraising effectiveness project that you might want to look into. It's free. Um, Your software company will install some type of a little thing on your program, and it measures your donor retention rates. and, um, And I think those things are really important because sometimes we measure how many new donors we get, but we forget about how many have we lost. So I would look into that fundraising effectiveness project and um, see if you can hook up through whatever software company you're using because most of the major ones are taking part in it. 
That's uh, that's terrific advice. You mentioned that we don't have very much time left here on the show. Uh, as a matter of fact, we only have a, a few moments left. So what is uh, the very best advice that Linda Lysakowski can leave my audience today? Oh, my goodness. Well, there's so many things. <laughs> I don't know where to start. But I would say, um, you know, there's probably probably three or so key essentials. One is to have a plan, and that plan should include evaluation of whether or not you were successful with each of your fundraising. I think we really need to assess our fundraising and, and look at ways we can do it better. Um, the second one is to to maintain high ethical standards because that's so critical, and that could be another whole show, but um, – ethical standards are so critical today in fundraising and then the third one is to just make sure that it is a team effort in your organization that everybody's pulling together and working with the same objectives in mind well that that's uh that's definitely one of the messages that um i think we do take away from uh, the show today is that that team approach and that team isn't just the people that you hire um but it's uh it's the the ceo and uh and the board members you also mentioned the uh, several times uh, databases and, uh, and information, and, and certainly uh, in page one, I know you heard uh, Pat Pasquale from the Foundation Center talking about big data. Uh, in just a couple of minutes, how do those sort of the team and data all come together to mean success? Well, I think the data needs to be analyzed, and maybe you know that might be the role of the development person that can really help make everybody else's job easier because one of the reasons CEOs and board members and volunteers don't like doing fundraising is they often don't feel prepared. So using that data, if you can go to your CEO and say, you know, I want you to have lunch with XYZ, you know, potential donor, and here's what they've given us in the past. Here's what they've given to other organizations in our community. Here's some background information about that person and their family and their interests and their job and their career and their avocation, then a person feels more comfortable because they it's like talking to a friend. It's the difference between knocking on a cold door like a fuller brush salesman and saying, hey, you don't want to buy any brushes, do you, or really <laughs> building a relationship. So that's where the data comes in, and that's where the role of the development officer can help make those other volunteers and your CEO feel more comfortable. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I absolutely uh, agree with you there, and that's a, a great connection uh, between the two. Linda, how can uh, my listeners uh, connect with you? Uh, we do have a link to your website over at tedhart.com. Click on radio links, but uh, are there other ways you'd like uh, people to be in touch with you? Sure. I, I do have a Facebook account and a Twitter account, um, but probably the easiest thing is email me, Linda at lindalizakowski.com, and if you have trouble spelling that, um, you can probably find that on Ted's link. But uh, I, my other right website so is TV Fundraising. Uh, we've only got two minutes left. I can't let you go without uh, giving your own personal pitch for ACFRE. Oh, well, I, I really encourage everyone who's a CFRE currently to think about the ACFRE process. It's a it's a long, grueling process. It's not cheap. You have to invest a lot of time and, a, and some significant sums of money in it. But it really is, I think, a credential that anybody who's serious about this profession should think seriously about. And I'd be happy. I do a lot of mentoring. I'm mentoring 
one person right now, uh, my last two mentees already have their ACFREs, but um, I'm mentoring someone right now through the process, and I'm always happy to talk to people who are interested in learning more about that. Well, again, Linda Lysakowski, one of the icons of the nonprofit sector. Your new book is Fundraising for the Genius. Thank you for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. Thank you, Ted. Bye now. We'll catch you next week. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.